Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Thank you, Radiance, and uh, hello, everyone. I'm Kirk Hansen. I'm pleased to moderate today's program with Rana Faruhar. Uh, Rana, uh, welcome to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this, uh, our plan is that I'll be in conversation with you for about 45 minutes, and then we'll save the last 15 minutes to ask the questions that our members have raised uh, and uh, using the chat. So hopefully they will uh, use that effectively, and I can ask a series of their questions at the end. But let me let me start. Your your book um, uh, is a fairly challenging one. You state succinctly at the end of the first chapter uh, what I took to be the theme. You say the bottom line is that the era of globalization as we know it, as we have known it, uh, for the last half century is over. To understand your argument, you then go on to talk about neoliberalism as a predecessor or perhaps a frame in which globalization has arisen. Let's unpack both of those terms, neoliberalism and globalization. Start with neoliberalism. What really is it uh, in your view? So um, thank you again for the opportunity. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Let me unpack neoliberalism to start. Um, the word is used in a lot of different ways in both the U.S. and Europe. But the way that I'm using it, I'm, I'm basically taking the IMF's definition, the International Monetary Fund, and they look at it as a an economic philosophy, a sort of a, a political economy philosophy, in which the assumption is that capital, goods, and people can go where wherever they want across borders freely. And that crucially, they're going to land where it's most productive for them to be. Um, and this has really been the underpinning philosophy of globalization for the last half century. I should say also that, you know, as, as I'm sure everyone knows, there's been many waves of globalization over the eons, right? You know, so when we say globalization, lots of different ways to think about it. But I'm talking about the sort of unfettered markets, um, neoliberal Chicago school philosophy that allowed particularly capital to travel across borders freely and goods to a certain extent over the last half century. Labor a little less so, and that's one of the problems that I try and get it in my book. One of the flaws in the neoliberal philosophy, and this is something that the IMF itself has actually started writing about, is that the assumption that each of those things, capital, goods, and people, could all travel just as fast and on equal terms was incorrect. And, and that's why we've gotten a lot of wealth created at a global level because capital has traveled really, you know, 35,000 feet over the problems of the nation state. You see the wealth of multinationals, um, you know, asset holders in multinational companies, the Chinese state, which is part of the cheap capital, cheap labor bargain that we can get into. But within countries, there's been growing inequality. Um, and that's true not just in the U.S., but in many other places. And so that's really the crux of the matter that I'm trying to get at in this book. Okay. And you you say that our embrace of neoliberalism in the United States or perhaps globally has never been absolute. You say that we recognize that the individual hand of economics uh, always needed uh, the visible hand of the law. Can you explain what you mean by that? 
Yeah, for sure. So one of the things I was fascinated by is to kind of trace the history of neoliberalism. And a lot of times when when folks talk about it in the media, they tend to speak about the Reagan-Thatcher revolution, for example, and the unleashing of global capital. But really, when you go back to the original neoliberal theories, you have to go back to the 1930s to Europe, the period in between the Great Wars, Uh, And there were a lot of philosophers, political scientists, economists that were coming together and trying to figure out how can we tampen down nationalism? How can we tampen down fascism? How can we prevent Europe from going to war and, you know, tearing itself apart again? And the way that they figured out to do this was to connect business and in particular capital across borders. And that worked for a long time. This was really the foundation and the influence of many of the Bretton Woods uh, institutions, the the World Bank, the IMF. excuse me, the the GATT, which eventually became the WTO. Um, But pendulums shift. And sometimes a philosophy works until it doesn't. And I'm arguing that we have these institutions that were, you know, in essence, regulating the political economy in their own way. They worked until they didn't. The pendulum has now gone too far. And we need other kinds of institutions and other kinds of incentives and nudges to make sure that we don't end up back in a similar period. And I, and I argue in the book that one of the problems with globalization and neoliberal globalization as we've known it is that it has in, increased inequality so much that you've seen populism and nationalism and even fascism return as a result of that. So in a way, we're kind of at that final pendulum shift, in my view, where the, the political ph- philosophy itself is tapped out. Uh, who do you consider to be the the champions of neoliberalism today? You talk about Frederick Hayek and and Milton Friedman, who, in the Stanford context, when I was a faculty member at Stanford, I de- got to debate Milton a couple of times. Uh, besides discovering that he was a more formidable debater than one might ever uh, expect, uh, I, I found his his arguments very persuasive as far as they went. But your critique is ba- basically what. Uh, people have been saying to Friedman, but who carries that uh, flag today? So it's a good question. You know, I think that the neoliberal philosophy has become so embedded in how our economy works that it's hard to find someone who doesn't carry the flag. You know, that that's part of the issue. So if you, again, go back to the 80s, to the Reagan-Thatcher revolution. You saw the unleashing of global capital. You saw... Um, financial deregulation and and companies starting to go abroad. But it wasn't really till the 1990s when you saw the unleashing of trade. Uh, and that really happened under the Clinton administration. You know, that's when you saw um, deals like NAFTA, ultimately the entry of China into the WTO in, in 2001 being sort of orchestrated. And so one of the points that I get out in the book is that both parties um, have become beholden to these philosophies. And I actually believe that that's one reason that the Democratic Party lost some working class voters, particularly in swing states, because I think that there's a sense that is this party looking after me or is it looking after a group of, you know, sorry to say, but coastal elites, I'm, I'm sure one of them, you know, many of the people listening are, um, uh, you know, I'm in, sitting here in New York and writing for the FT. Um but, you know, are they, is the party really looking after my interests? And I think that that sense of um, the global economy flying so far ahead of national politics is one of the reasons that we're seeing that, that pull, particularly for the Democrats. Mm-hmm. So, so let's unpack uh, further some of the effects 
that you uh, describe. Uh, uh, if globalization is this free flow of capital and supposed labor, uh, although you challenge that clearly, um, uh, the impacts Inequality was the major one that you argue yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, in the book, and you describe that. Uh, you have a number of others. What other two or three effects do you think are most uh, obvious and, uh, in essence, damaging to the, the public welfare? So, you know, the idea that markets are always efficient and always right is, is very much a Friedman-esque philosophy. And Friedman, of course, was influenced by Hayek. And I think that at this point, in the wake of the financial crisis, the pandemic, war in Ukraine, I mean, we're beginning to see that there is such a thing as political in a political economy, and that markets are not operating in some sort of perfect vacuum, that they're influenced by flawed people, by flawed institutions, by behaviors that are not always rational. And that's something that I think is, has become a real felt experience for, for everyone, really, in the last few years. So I would say debunking that myth of efficiency is one. Um, I think also the sense that we didn't really have a national conversation in this country about the economic decisions that we were making. And I'd like to share actually an anecdote that I have towards the beginning of the book. Um, it was a conversation that was very seminal, in fact, to to the, the shaping of this book. I was talking to the late labor leader, Richard Trumpka, who was the former president of the AFL-CIO. Uh, this was several years ago. And I was asking him, you know, what was the conversation around trade policy in the 1990s? And he told me that an administration official from the Clinton um, administration had come to him and at the time of NAFTA and when there was conversation about China into the WTO. And he said, you know, you know that these deals are going to really hurt U.S. labor. What are we going to do about this? How are we going to get through? And the official said, we, we know definitely wages are going to go down. It's, it's going to be tough, but then they're going to go back up. And Trumpka said, well, how long is that going to take? And the official said three to five generations. And that, that message that we had policies that were going to result in the hollowing out of communities for a hundred years, basically, and that that wasn't front and center and really focused on is, I think, again, one of the reasons why we have such polarized politics today. So that would be another thing that I would point out. So, so where was that felt most, uh, most completely? You Family farms, is that uh, agribusiness taking over, global agribusiness taking over the, the production of food? Is that one of your major well, examples then? Food is, food is certainly one of the lenses that I look at. My book is actually, you know, I, I lay out my thesis in the, in the beginning and then I look at the effects through the window of three different industries, agriculture, textiles, and technology. And I, you know, we can talk about why I picked those. But um, um, in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the breadth of that felt experience, I mean, I think it's been felt throughout U.S. business. You know, my first book, Makers and Takers, explored um, why companies are so often incentivized to make such short-term decisions that are not always in their best interest. And it's because the financial markets are pushing them to that kind of short-termism. And that means getting you know, your costs off your balance sheet, outsourcing, um, replacing as much labor as possible with technology. Um, you know, We don't have a lot of social safety nets or a particularly collaborative labor corporate management movement in this country. So that results in a lot of people getting left behind. And I grew up in rural Indiana where that was the story of the 1980s and 1990s. You know, certainly you saw 
the death of family farms and the growth of agribusiness, which is. Can, can so you explain that dynamic? How, how does globalization affect the family farm in the United States? Well, globalization basically sorts for big, it sorts for cheap, uh, it sorts for consolidation. So, you know, you look at the rise of large multinational companies of every kind, and you can see that playing out. And, and one of the things that we came to, to see during COVID, of course, when the pandemic hit, suddenly restaurants are closed, but there are a line at grocery stores and you can't get what you want. Well, why is that? Because there's two totally separate supply chains, both optimized for efficiency. And I, you know, I kind of put that in quotation marks, which means optimized for, you know, very speedy, very concentrated, but they don't talk to one another. They're not resilient. They're not particularly nimble. And you get, you find out that you've got about four major food companies controlling the entire system. So that's one of the aspects that you can see this neoliberal philosophy playing out. And it comes with costs. You know, one of the things I try to get out in the book is that Cheap isn't always cheap when you look at the secondary effects. You know, cheap may look great on a balance sheet in a, in a, um, a corner office somewhere. But if you look at something like um, the environmental degradation that comes from big agribusiness or the health effects of growing, you know, so many cash crops that are actually not nutritious, they may, they may produce a lot of calories, but they're used, you know, like corn, for example, mainly to feed beef or, uh, or cattle, which is extremely um, difficult for the environment. Or in um, you know byproducts that are put into processed foods, this then has a knock-on effect for our healthcare system. So when you start to factor in all those things, and I'm not even counting the price of you know transport of cash crops and the carbon impact, you get a different calculation. So so why isn't that factored into market price? Uh, you know the multinational executive, if if uh, he or she is operating. Uh, rationally should be making decisions that take into account all of those costs. And you're saying those are not in the market today? Well, if you think about how the C-suite is compensated, you know, the average CEO in America gets between 30 and 80 percent of their compensation in stock. Unfortunately, um, the things that create long-term value uh, and things that jack up a, a share price quarter by quarter are sometimes not the same thing. So the incentives, I think, are, are a little bit out of whack. And, I, you know, just to, to shift to a slightly different part of the book, I think you can really see that in the relationship between the U.S. and China and the business relationship in particular. You know, I've been going to China for 25 years and I've always thought, first of all, amazing country, incredible people, incredible um, entrepreneurship and, and just sort of zeal energy. But the first time I went, I looked around and I thought, gosh, why do people think that this country is going to seamlessly incorporate itself into the Washington consensus? You know, that's working for China right now. But eventually, this is a country that to me looks very similar to the US in the post-World War II period, where you're going to have a single language market, a lot of room to grow. You're going to want to own more of that market. It's an autocracy. There's no, you know, um, uh, the state and capitalism are the same. So why would we assume, why would a multinational executive assume that he or she wouldn't be, um, you know, potentially uh, open to the rules, of the game being changed any moment? Well, that's been a kind of a willful blindness on the part, I think, of executives and policymakers. Now the rules of the game have changed and you can really see that, that ripple effect. But these facts were always there hiding in plain sight. And uh, I, I have to... 
confess my complicity in that. I used to run an institute within an institute. It was the Beijing-based WTO Institute when China was gearing up to join the WTO. And I headed an institute on business ethics and trying to help Chinese officials think about what the expectations of them were going to be globally. I guess you would argue that the expectations have not been what I might have discussed then in climate or labor relations or whatever, uh, have not been a part of the, if you like, the ethics code of of, uh, multinationals nor of Chinese companies. Well, I think that multinational companies are basically incentivized to increase share prices. And, um, you know, doing that is not always um, in line with um, with the values, I think, that you're you're espousing. I mean, one of the gr- great examples of this, I actually had it in my first book, was the, if you remember the collapse of the Rana Plaza factory in uh, Bangladesh, and I believe it was 2011. You know, that's a perfect example of, all right, get costs off the balance sheet. And then it goes from outsourcer to outsourcer to outsourcer. And pretty soon you have a factory in Bangladesh made with shoddy standards that collapses and kills 1,100 people. It was making clothing for big brands like H&M, Walmart. But there was no understanding of that risk because the executive isn't being incentivized to, you know, take care of people way down the the line, Uh, you know, in Bangladesh, he's being incentivized to keep his share prices up. And that tends to mean um, keeping, uh, you know, marshalling your capital and getting costs off the balance sheet. In terms of China, I think it's complicated. You know, China has a system that for many years has worked well for China. And I think it's always been a very diff- different political economy than than the U.S., than, than many parts of Europe. I think we're beginning to see just how different now. Xi Jinping's, uh, you know, regime, of course, which is um, really hardening state control, is adding another layer to that difference, I think. But even before that, those differences were there. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we go on, let me remind our uh, viewers that we're speaking with Rana Faruhar, who's a global business columnist and associate editor of the Financial Times and author of the new book, Homecoming, uh, The Path to Pos- Prosperity in a Post-Global World. Um, Rana, let's let's continue our look at the evidence that globalization is, is failing us. Uh, you point to a variety of other indicators, in, including the financial meltdown, the fragility of, of finance 2008, um, uh, and, uh, and others. Uh, do you think these will continue to pile up, uh, these failures, if we uh, continue to rely on globalization? I think that they will. I mean, in you know, in some ways, the problems of liquidity that you know were so evident in the two thousand and eight crisis and the um, you know the the which was really it was a financial crisis. Those problems are now evidenced in supply chains, in inventory. I mean, inventory and liquidity have become kind of similar in terms of the paradigms you might look at for comparing two thousand and eight to today. We have discovered over the last few years how. Uh, how much it matters if you get your energy from an autocrat, how much it matters if you source PPE from the lowest cost producer, in this case, China, which then decides in the middle of a pandemic, you know, we'd like to keep that for our own people, which makes sense from Beijing's perspective, but of course presents challenges for the U.S. Those things are only going to increase. You know, I was speaking um, as part of my book, but also recently to a supply chain expert that was making the point to me that in the case of war in Ukraine, 
there were maybe five crucial supply chains that were you know really compromised um, as part of that war. If we were to see a blockade of Taiwan, let's say, which is not out of the question, there would be hundreds, if not thousands, of supply chains that would be impacted. Now, you can see in the U.S. that the Biden administration has started really taking some um, some pathways, sketching out some pathways about what matters. Rare earth minerals matter. Semiconductors matter. Lithium batteries matter. But within just those three baskets, and you, you know, I wouldn't even say that those are the, the you know, the, the limit of what the, the core baskets should be. You could look at pharmaceuticals, um, many other things. There are hundreds of thousands of inputs and companies don't know where all of them are. Government, not one agency, a single agency of government doesn't know all that. That's all being figured out at the moment. And so I think we are going to see dominoes continue to fall. And, you know, you can see even just in the last, what is it, week or so that the semiconductor supply chain has changed dramatically. We're So we're backing off the reliance on Taiwan for 92% of our general chips and and so on. Is, is this a whole new era of supply chain? Uh, I saw in one of your other interviews, you're talking about the rule of four and having multiple uh, uh, sources for almost uh, anything that you desperately need. Is is that where we're headed? Is that political instability uh, is going to lead to um, uh, and, and a, an, a multinational executive would say greater costs in the supply chain? We might talk about resilience as a more positive concept, but is that where we're headed? Well, in an answer, yes, and the tr- and both things are true, right? Resiliency and potentially higher inflation. Um, you know, resiliency has a cost. It's that whole cheap wasn't really as cheap as we thought um, argument. When you tally in the input costs um, of, of high quality labor, environmental standards, energy. And of course, as you and many of the, the listeners probably know, some of those calculations were changing even before the pandemic and the war in Ukraine. So, you know, I can remember talking to executives five, even 10 years ago, They were saying, you know what, wages in China have gone up enough and energy costs and emissions are high enough that we're going to rethink the idea of of taking really low margin products through long supply chains through the South China Seas. That's something that was already being thought about. The rise of um, high tech additive manufacturing, which is an amazing, amazing opportunity, I think, um, for this country and for many was changing the ability to hub production and consumption, which of course has a lot of advantages for companies. So so this was already happening. Now you layer on the geopolitical aspect of it and the sense of in a pandemic, what do you want to have? What's important to you? Um, I think that it's only going to speed up. Um, the uh, Can you characterize the uh, new consensus that's emerging. If we reject uh, what Friedman called the the flat Earth, the world is flat, and yeah. uh, I love that you're challenging that uh, popular notion. Um, uh, what do we describe this uh, this new consensus as? Uh, what is it? So it's so it's a really good question. Um, we're still developing it. We don't have a unified field theory yet, and you know that's challenging, right? Because when you have a unified field theory, when you have the, you know, the world is flat thesis, the neoliberal thesis, markets are always efficient. That's it. We're done here. Nothing to see. It's kind of easy. But when you start to think about the messy real world that we live in, 
it gets more complicated. So, you know, there are the beginnings of theories about where we could be going. Um, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, um, has talked about a, a modern supply side in which the government has to take a little bit more active role in the production and supply side of, of the equation for the economy because the market's not doing it. You know, and masks would be a great example of this. I'll, I'll share a story actually from the book. One of the um, areas I looked at quite carefully was the um, textile supply chain in North and South Carolina. And I, I looked at that because I wanted an example of what was the industry that was hardest hit by China into the WTO? And you could probably say that either textiles or furniture would, would be that. Um, so the pandemic hits, we're all buying these three cent masks from China. Certain, uh, suddenly they're not available. You have all these companies in the supply chain in the Carolinas and the companies that are left are sort of Darwinian case studies of how to run a really, really efficient business. They tend to be middle market, private, um, so they don't, face um, Wall Street pressure as much. Often they're community-based, so they're kind of, they know the lay of the land. They're, they're both collaborating and competing with folks in their, in their region. So very nimble, almost like a, a Stuttgart model, a kind of a Germanic model of how to do business. And they say, okay, nobody's buying t-shirts, so let's try and make masks. Well, at that point, the average cost to make an American mask was 30 cents. By the time the pandemic was over, it was 10 cents. That's pretty good. That's pretty efficient. That shows you that you can still make things. So that's kind of interesting. Maybe as a country, we should come in and put a floor under that market and say, you know, let's get 25% of our supply and maybe use federal or state purchasing budgets to do that of masks from this particular industry. And then let's think about how that industry, which was so nimble and able to turn, might also be able to turn to make, say, covers for wind turbines or upholstery for electric vehicles. That's the kind of modern supply side push. Now, it also starts to veer into industrial policy. I'll use a third rail term or strategy, as Brian Deese um, would, would say. Um, and a lot of people are uncomfortable with that. But I do think that that sense of sometimes the markets are not allocating effectively when it comes to those common goods is something we have to start paying attention to. I mean, we do it with the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, right, which has certainly come in handy recently. And there may be, as you say, a strategic reserve in chips, a strategic reserve in, right. in other areas. So does that mean, take tariffs as another expression, perhaps, of industrial policy? Do you see um, a, a much more aggressive tariff strategy by the United States to uh, to limit that dependence on particular countries, perhaps for supply? Well, so it's an interesting question. Um, you know, I was unusual amongst my colleagues at the FT, I would say, in being sympathetic towards the tack that um, Bob Lighthizer, the former Trump USTR, took um, around around tariffs. Because, you know, having, again, studied the the market, the U.S.-China relationship, I did feel for some time that it was out of balance and, and unfair. And so I do think that tariffs have a role to play in this. But I think there need to be both carrots and sticks, right? Um, otherwise, you know, you don't want to get into a trade war, a tit-for-tat tariff war. But if you look at, say, the Inflation Reduction Act, the new, um, which is essentially a climate policy, right, that the Biden administration has passed, um, as the math gets done on how uh, sourcing happens and who gets to you know, be part of that incentivization program. 
there'll be border adjustment um, uh, issues. You know, there'll be some countries that are doing the right thing with carbon will be able to come in more cheaply than countries that are doing the wrong thing with carbon. And so, and, and conversely, American companies that have been in some ways disadvantaged in the global marketplace by doing the right thing will be able to be incentivized. That's the ideal um, way that this would work out for me. This touches on what's basically a value question of how we approach climate change and change our values and begin to be willing to incur some some costs associated with that in the shorter uh, term. Uh, do you see that happening, that the United States will have that capacity? Uh, we've become pretty dependent both on cheap prices because of globalization, uh, and even though it produces all of these inequities that you describe. We're, we're pretty used to having the low prices that globalization uh, has given us. Uh, and we're also pretty skeptical as a, a, a polity uh, about climate change and other things that are beyond my lifetime, your lifetime. It's, you know, that's, that's the golden question, right? I mean, and it's a, it's such a profound question. Um, we're really at a pivot moment on that. And I think I think the next year is going to give us a really good in indication about whether the American public is going to be on board with this or not. Now, some of what happens, let's, let's be fair, is out of our control. And often in the U.S., we talk about these things as though we're the only player in the market. I would actually argue that in some ways China is the more important driver of what's happening because if you look Years ago, they announced in their five-year plan that they wanted to have what's called a dual circulation economy. And what that means is we want to keep more production at home. We want to hub production and consumption. We want to own our own supply chains and be much more regional. It makes sense for all kinds of reasons. We've talked about some of them, climate, labor, et cetera. Um, so China is moving ahead with that strategy. Um, I think it is very unlikely that there's going to be a recoupling of the technological supply chains between China and the U.S. for national security reasons. So in that world, I think regionalization just has to happen. Now, how are we going to deal with the higher costs of that resiliency and who's going to bear the burden? And that's where you're making this very important point. Americans, particularly lower income Americans, not only have gotten used to lower prices, they depend on them. And so the question is, who's going to pay the price for that resiliency? Is it going to be the consumer, particularly the lower end consumer? Is it going to be companies? Is it going to be the government? My hope, I mean, you know, uh, we'll see what happens in the midterms, but my hope is that there's going to be more burden sharing on the part of corporate America there. And that there's also going to be a stronger uh, public-private partnership working together to sort of figure out how to make sure that low uh, wage Americans don't end up spending, you know, a huge amount of their income more than they are already in things like food and fuel and, um, you know, heating their homes or driving their cars. I think that 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 may be the question, economic question of the next five years. Let me just uh, focus on your notion about regionalism. Uh, so you see regional economic strategies, supply chain strategies emerging where we might be part of a Canada, Mexico, perhaps South America region, and you have an East Asia region, and maybe you have a Europe region, maybe a 
Russian region. Uh, is that the future and that we're going we're gonna to basically be trying to source as much as we can within our regional I, I think that that will be the future. You know, in, in an ideal world, and, and um, Deputy uh, Canadian Prime Minister Christia Freeland gave a really wonderful speech about this a couple of weeks ago at the Brookings Institution. Um, in an ideal world, this could be like a better NAFTA. You know, you could finally think about labor a little bit, think about income-based growth rather than just, you know, um, financialized growth, globalized growth, pushing costs off the balance sheet and not worrying about um, uh, you know, the worker, that hasn't worked. You know, when you look at the idea that cheap goods in Walmart were going to essentially make up for lost jobs, it's just a complete fallacy because you look at the rising cost of all the things that make us middle class, housing, education, in this country, healthcare, they were rising at triple the core inflation rate even before this latest bout of inflation. And we can, we can talk about some of the reasons for this bout, but, um, that bargain just wasn't working. A cheaper flat screen TV in Walmart was not making up for the fact that we were not growing middle-class jobs. And so I think that this new kind of trade regionalism in an ideal world could really help take us to that next level. And one of the things I'm quite optimistic about is the way in which the revolution of the consumer internet is now coming to business, and that prevents a, uh, that. Sorry, that that um, uh, uh, poses a tremendous opportunity because all the things that are you know so powerful in our phones that we're all holding are now coming to business, and a lot of that IP lives in the U.S. It lives in Canada. At the same time, there is still um, a pretty nimble manufacturing base um, in Mexico and in the U.S. You could see that kind of regionalism working to grow higher-end jobs in which manufacturing and services are more closely knit together with a layer of technology and data on top that I think could be really terrific if we get it right. I'm, I'm not clear how labor is going to be uh, helped by all of this? How is it, how are its wages going to rise and, and how are we going to cope? And, and you point out one other dimension of the labor equation, which is the huge growth of care jobs. Oh yes. In the United States. That's a separate topic. Let me, let me, let me take that in a, in a separate, um, point, but in terms of how labor would benefit, if we get the policies right and we're able to create high quality, made in America or made in America and its allies jobs um, that actually upskill workers and take the U.S. manufacturing base, knitting it together with IoT, Internet of Things, with services, with data, take that to a more competitive level, you get higher productivity and then ultimately you're going to get higher wages. What we did was essentially outsource the entire industrial base, at least big companies did, and that result, uh, resulted in a very bifurcated um, labor force. You know, you got kind of an overhang of the old union system within Detroit, but then you got a lot of cheap labor, um, but not particularly well-skilled coming up in the red states and a big hollowed out middle. Um, fortunately, there are still some mid-market family firms in that, in that middle. But I think building up that middle is so important to competitiveness and resiliency, because let's face it, the world isn't flat. It's bumpy and it's going to get bumpier for a little while. And you point out education is critical, whether it be skills-based education a la a German model, but the importance of building up that capacity to take advantage of those bumpy opportunities. Uh, 
For sure, for sure. Um, and that kind of plays into the services um, question as well. You'd raised uh, the point about care jobs becoming so important. That's another uh, tailwind to localization, I would say, because if you look at, say, the top 10 fastest growing job categories, about six of them are in the care professions, healthcare, education, et cetera. And those are local. I mean, some of that can be outsourced, but not a whole lot. It's mostly local. And demographics are going to mean that the labor market in those areas is going to become tighter. And so you're going to have a strong labor market for care if you can connect that with education that really makes those jobs great jobs, you know, takes them from being $15 an hour jobs to to really high quality ways of providing health care to an aging demographic, I think that that could be a, a tremendous opportunity economically. And, um, okay, so let's uh, let's evaluate how far this revolution that you're describing <laughs> has come. Um, uh, do, do you think we are partway through this localization, relocalization, or do you think that it's really still primarily in the future? Or maybe the, maybe the awareness is there that we've got to make this pivot. How do you assess that? No, I would say it's a little farther along than that. If you go back um, five, six years in time, you were already starting to see um, most cross-border goods trade being flat or falling in many cases. So that goes back to the sense that for a lot of reasons, be it environmental, wage costs, um, productivity, energy, arbitrage, companies were localizing. They were starting to regionalize and localize. That that cheap capital, cheap labor bargain between the U.S. and Asia had been starting to be tapped out in some industries. Add to that the technological advancements. Additive manufacturing is up 22% year on year. You're seeing a lot more localized production now. So goods and services um, of many kinds, definitely localizing. Data less so, you know, cross-border data flows are still, that's that's pretty globalized. But I would argue that as the U.S., Europe, and China start to go in somewhat different ways in terms of how they regulate, particularly the U.S. and China, how they regulate um, the internet, you know, and, and, and data services in general, I think you're going to see a little more decoupling there. Um, there's a big trade negotiation going on right now, the IPEF negotiation, you know, uh, that's going to essentially pave a new way for the U.S. and Asia and digital is a big part of that. You know, what are our values around data? How are we going to protect it? Do we, you know, we, we know we don't want state surveillance capitalism a la China, but, you know, we have surveillance in this country too. So, you know, what are our values? What are the balances? How do we think about antitrust? These are all the questions that are being asked right now in, in the digital world. And, and that raises the question, what will remain global uh, or more global than more local and and data perhaps is one with some kinds of rules i guess from your argument I think, I think that that's right but i think traditional goods is definitely going to localize and regionalize services will be a mixed bag it's going to depend on the industry it's going to depend on the country and the par- the the sort of values paradigm i think um people that's tricky you know it's a it's a double edged sword i mean one of the things that's been quite interesting post pandemic is to see, all right, there's been this entirely new work map created in the U.S., right? I mean, you know, we all started working remotely. Many of us, you know, moved or relocated two or three hours outside of cities, maybe further. And it's interesting. I was talking at a a CEO conference to some folks about this about a year ago. And they said, you know, 
Yeah, on the one hand, that argues for a kind of new localized wealth creation in the U.S. You see cities like Austin or uh, Charlotte really taking off. People go to Tahoe. But he said, if you can do the job in Tahoe, you can do it in Bangalore. And so that starts to, to raise the question, are we going to see white collar job outsourcing? And I suspect that that will be a very contentious area of debate in the future. Well, let's let's look at what the impacts are going to be like in those small towns and in the cities of uh, the United States going forward. I, I was interested in your your love of the Indiana small town and uh, the the sense that they those are some of the areas that have been hit hardest by globalization. Uh, will this mid market development you talk about will that reinvigorate small towns or a selection of small towns? Do you think? I, I do. You know, I, I can see that happening in certain parts of uh, of the Midwest of the, you know, what would have been called the Rust Belt and uh, certain parts of the South. Um, you can certainly see it in the Carolinas with the EV uh, in South Carolina, in particular with the, the EV um, incentives there in Indiana, where I grew up. There is an interesting rebound and, and some of it, um, fascinatingly, is being driven by overseas corporations. You know, you get um, a, a company uh, you know, an Indian tech company coming in and saying, hey, there's a pretty good mix of, you know, reasonably low cost housing, relatively skilled labor, because there's still some strong state universities in this area will come in, will bolster these these parts of the country. But I think also this idea that we are going to make things again, that is going to support the Rust Belt in general. Um, you know, you can see that with the, the announcement of the big fab, uh, semiconductor fab in Ohio, and now another one in upstate New York, so I, I expect there's going to be more of that. Uh, will it occur quickly enough, perhaps, to nip in the bud this reaction of the neglected small towns politically and their rebellion against the elites? You know, that is it is such a great question. I was literally in Washington having that conversation with um with a policymaker uh, in the administration, and I am a little worried because it does take time for these things to play out. I mean, as, as everyone um, uh, in, in your audience probably knows, semiconductor fabs take really 10 years to kind of ramp up, build, um, have all that product productivity trickle through. I think it's going to be till 2024 before we really start to feel, you know, at a grassroots level, some of this change. So I'm not so sure it's going to help in the midterms. Now, is it going to help in the presidentials? Possibly. I do think that, um, Biden's work, not wealth uh, slogan is a powerful one. You know, a lot of people accuse the administration of not doing very good messaging. I don't know. You know, I mean, it's 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 comparing Trump to Biden is a little apples to oranges. So we'll have to see who the Republicans put up. What about the cities? Um, I'm personally very interested in the, the future of the cities. I, I at one point was deputy director of a group in Chicago that tried to refurbish and encourage the development, economic development in the uh, in the central city. Uh, it sounds in your book as if you think the city centers will be dispersed to multiple places around the city that we'll have in different boroughs or in different parts of cities economic development, but not necessarily in the central city and not necessarily led by big multinationals that in the past have been the anchor of our great cities. 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, going back to what we spoke about earlier, I think if globalization for the last half century has argued for big and concentrated, I think the whole pendulum shift to a neoliberal model, everything from um, revitalization of manufacturing to um, a place-based economics, you know, within the economics profession, there's a growing sense that, you know what, guess, guess what, it kind of does matter whether you grow up in, um, you know, Palo Alto or Toledo, you know, I mean, if you can believe it in economic models, those things were not accounted for in the past. So that that kind of decision making is going to support different regions in terms of the cities themselves. I've been quite fascinated just to watch what's happened in New York, for example. Um, pandemic hits Midtown, which is where all the big office buildings, the big corporate anchor tenants were, is hollowed out right away. And, and that I think is going to, that's going to have a problem coming back. You're probably going to see some shifts in real estate development and multi-use buildings, but areas like mine in Brooklyn or outer boroughs like Queens have been booming. Nine out of the top 10 fastest growing markets since the pandemic have been in Brooklyn or Queens, which are outer boroughs. And that's because the balance is better. You've got you know, it's not, it's still New York. It's not perfect, but you've got, you've got a paradigm in which you can afford housing. You can maybe get a job nearby. There's possibly a public school and some transport. Whereas in Midtown Manhattan, you know, you have to be a billionaire to afford an apartment or a millionaire, maybe, um, you know, there's not a public school there. Everything's hyper-concentrated, um, very bifurcated. I think communities that are less bifurcated and more integrated between um, public-private, between residential and commercial, between the types of commercial manufacturing, I think that, the, or sorry, the types of commercial activity, I think those are going to take off. And it's really, it's very Jane Jacobs way of looking at the world. I think it's coming back. But it's not coming back to the old model where you had a few large multinationals headquartered in the downtown. I don't think so, because nobody's able to get people back five days a week. Right. What what impact will all of this have on our relation, our political global political relationships with China and Russia and so on. What do you see? Political economy, uh, all relations with China are both political and economic. It's a, it's a great question. And it's something I'm worried about. Um, look, there's no doubt that the relationship is contentious. You know, um, I would argue that some of the things that are happening now, for example, the export ban uh, in the last week or so on high-end uh, dual-use chip technology. Okay, you could look at that as an aggressive act. You could say, "Oh gosh, this is taking us to a uh, you know a more contentious place." You could also look at it and say, "You know what? We've all been willfully blind to the fact that these two systems were not integrating in the way that we thought that they would, and now that scrim has been pulled up." And actions are being taken to make sure that we're not vulnerable, you know, no matter what happens. I do think that it's going to be very difficult for the U.S. and Xi Jinping's China, which, you know, if you've been watching the the news from the last couple of days through the party Congress, is becoming um, much more focused on national security than growth, much more hardline. Um, I think that that's going to be a difficult relationship going forward. One thing I am hopeful about is that the transatlantic relationship can be strengthened. And I think that that's where um, really spelling out what does friendshoring mean? You know, what does it mean to be part of these new economic unions with big countries like the U.S.? Um, Europe in particular, you know, uh, Britain, I work for British newspaper, 
feeling a little anxious right now because they're sort of small countries that are out in the middle of this new great power conflict and they don't know where they're going to fit. It's going to be really important to make people understand that there are coalitions of the willing around values that can be built. Let me get to a couple of questions. Thank you for very interesting and thorough discussion. I, I want to get to a couple of the questions uh, uh, that the uh, uh, members have have raised. Um, uh, the concept of place-based economics, a couple of people have pursued that and said, what does that really mean and how far can it progress? We've gotten to some dimensions of that, but uh, we've talked about place-based strategies in the past. How does it apply to this moment and place-based economics? So, in my book, um, I have an interview with a, a there, I had a conversation with an aide to a very high level Democratic senator. And we were talking about this, this idea that Democrats um, in the Clinton administration in particular have that it didn't matter where you put the jobs, you just had to create the jobs. You know, it's all that um, uh, the markets are totally efficient, and they'll put things wherever they're, they're, they're best place to do so. So, okay, we created a lot of jobs on the coast. We didn't create any in the towns that ended up voting Trump. You know, that was a problem. And that assumption that it did, the community didn't matter, that place didn't matter, which is now being disproved. You know, in fact, Gordon Hansen, who's a Harvard academic um, and his colleague, Danny Roderick, have a wonderful project on reimagining capitalism that's looking at the really hyper specific um, localized dynamics in these markets. And what they're finding is that people in the places that have been the most hollowed out tend to be even less mobile than other people might be because they are looking for security. They are looking for to, to keep whatever tenuous threads of community um, or place can support them. So this idea that we have in the U.S. that everybody's totally mobile and we're all kind of you know globetrotters and we can just move from city to city not only works less well at a national level than it did, it's particularly ill-suited to, to economic development in certain parts of the country. Um, there's some questions about the, the building of fabs in the United States, Intel's yeah. new fab, um, uh, chip fab, and the, the basic question is, who's going to pay for all this? Is it indeed governments through things like the CHIP Act that are going to end up paying for some of that redundancy and resiliency? Or do we really expect these businesses to pick up, multinational businesses, to pick up the additional cost of that resilience? Or will they run right off the cliff uh, uh, immolating themselves when we have a war or something that totally disrupts their business model. Wow, what a, what a great question. One of the reasons I love talking to you all is there's just such smart questions from your from your listeners. Um, I think a few different things are going to happen. Let me, let me start with just a little bit of historical context. If you look back in the last couple of hundred years at the periods in this country, or really in most of the developed world, where you have real growth, not financialized growth, not the stock market is going up, but real shared growth where GDP goes up, incomes go up, you know, people are feeling prosperous and the economy is dynamic. Those tend to happen around big, the emergence of a big pivotal technology, the railroads, the internet. Now it's clear to me that that's clean tech and, you know, anything to do with the climate transition. Um, the government comes in and puts a floor under the market either by incentivizing, you know, the race to the West in the case of, um, of the railroads or, you know, DARPA, the internet, you know, came out and then Silicon Valley commercialized it. 
you get a floor under a market and then the private sector comes in and commercializes it. Now you need demand. You need demand. And that's where I think it's going to be interesting with chips. It's, it's, it's kind of the great experiment. Can we get enough demand by uh, just the U.S. and allies coming together and saying, yeah, we do need this supply. We are going to underwrite this. In that case, I think that the, the government's investment, which has been substantial, will pay off. But this cannot be a one-sided, you know, every industry goes to Washington looking for support kind of a thing. Because for one thing, companies are holding the vast majority of wealth right now. I mean, they have the largest share of the overall economic pie in, you know, in post-war history, roughly. Um, so it's going to be important that they play their role in this too. And, you know, whether that is done willingly or through um, redistribution, it's going to be an interesting question. Um, but I do think that companies are going to be under more pressure to um, to really invest. And, and that will be incentivized with, I think, um, tax credits for productive CapEx. I think you're probably going to see some more rollback and, and um, uh, tampening down of share buybacks and that balance between Wall Street and Main Street and incentivizing the right kind of growth is going to shift. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the skepticism of industrial policy has arisen in the questions. And, yes, you know, sure. can can the government pick the right chip uh, production or are chips the thing that it ought to invest in or uh, yeah. railroads at the time they were or, or uh, DARPA at the time that uh, the Internet uh, uh, was generated. Uh, well, you know, I would love, I, and I would love and tweet me if, if you're listening. And if you have a great example of what the government should have funded at the time of the railroads or at the time of the internet, that is a counter example. I'd love to hear that because I think we made pretty good choices, you know, big transformative technology, encourage it. The private sector goes, I mean, to me, it's just quite clear that that's clean tech right now. You could argue that, you know, biotech is important too. There there are other things, but do I think that the Biden administration is getting it roughly vectorally right by saying we care about rare earth minerals, lithium batteries and semiconductors? Yeah, I do. Do I think they should get into picking the the exact companies? no, I'm I'm not for picking winners. I don't think the government does a great job of that. But I do think that there's an opportunity. And I, I've written a number of columns about this for the public and private sector to come together and start really tracking where are our supply chains? Where have they gone the last 50 years? I mean, where is stuff? Not that we have to bring it all back or localize it or reshort. We don't want to do that in every case, but we don't even know where the risk is. I mean, this is like 2007, and we have no idea who's holding all the subprime bad debt. Well, it's interesting. We've we've taught a course at the Stanford Business School for a couple of generations now on strategy in a non-market environment to try to pick up uh, political risk and a variety of other topics. And I'm not sure we've ever had the, the, the knowledge base or the data base uh, to develop those strategies. Well, I honestly think, I mean, Stanford, um, Harvard, you know, MIT, some of these institutions would be, or, you know, organizations the McKinsey Global Institute would be well served to start digging into this because every time I'm in Washington, I hear this, we need more data. We need, and I hear this from companies too. I mean, interestingly, I had a conversation um, recently with the largest yarn maker in America, this company Parkdale that basically makes all the cotton swabs that we've all been using, um, you know, religiously in the last few few years. Um, and they don't know 
what the yarn production is in North America as a whole, because the government defunded the organization within uh, commerce that tracked that 20 years ago. That's kind of a nice bit of information to have. Now, maybe the government shouldn't be doing all this, but somebody needs to be holding that information. And this is like, you know, a plug to all listeners in public and private sector. There's a market opportunity there. Um, we got a couple questions about Silicon Valley. We're very uh, self-referential here. <laughs> you guys do a lot of good stuff. You, you a lot, lot of props to you. So one is, uh, what would you recommend to Apple, given its exposure to all of its manufacturing uh, in China? Um, and uh, let's start with that, and then I'll give you the other one. What uh, What is a company that is terribly ex- uh, exposed uh, to China and other difficult places? Well, uh, without giving investment advice, I'll just say I'm short, big, and globalized, and I'm long, mid-sized, smaller, and localized and regionalized. I mean, if you just look at the S, uh, you know, what small caps have done in the last year compared to the S and P, they're more than double the return, which I think reflects the fact that big companies in which I mean, Apple's a, a great example actually um, that make a lot of their money via highly globalized supply chains in parts of the world where it's becoming much more difficult to do business and particular technology business, tough, very tough. I mean, Qualcomm is another guy, you know, the consumer brands are one thing, but think about a company like Qualcomm, half its business comes from Apple, half comes from China. Whoa, that's a, you know, that's a head spinner. And I'm not sure the markets have reflected that completely yet. Uh, and uh, the other question has to do with with the formation of businesses and the entrepreneurship of Silicon Valley. If if we return to a more place based uh, economic strategy and more of a localization, uh, what does that do to um, uh, business formation and entrepreneurship and and such uh, in the United States? Well, I hope that all of these things will essentially spread the wealth re-more wealth in place. I mean, my core observation in this book is that creating global wealth is great, but the global economy got so far ahead of local communities and, and local community well-being that it created not only wild income inequality and a very lopsided economy. You know, it's like you and I are on either coast kind of like pulling down and then the rest of the country is someplace else. It created a crisis of democracy because there are a lot of people that feel that the system is is rigged against them and isn't working for them. And we've got to fix that. We've got to get a better balance um, in our economy and thus in our politics. Can you make that case to business people so that they become part of the, if you like, the lobby for government policies that facilitate that or even influence their own decisions about, you know, where they're going to source and such? Well, you know, it, I, I think that a lot of business people are kind of getting hip to this. It's funny, you know, I, I started thinking about um, this paradigm shift from global to local or the balance between the two years ago. And probably 10 years ago, I had an interesting um, interview, actually. I did a time, I was at Time Magazine at that point. I did a cover story on um, Howard Schultz at Starbucks. And he, like many people that ran consumer-facing brands, were starting to get worried about income inequality and the, the economic ramifications of that. And I think so I think a lot of consumer brands have felt for a while, gosh, 
I mean, as he put it to me back then, you know, you, you, you have a country of latte makers and latte drinkers, and you better hope if you're making the lattes, you have more drinkers, you know, um, or you have enough drinkers. Now, I think that a lot of businesses in many fields, because of the supply chain issues, are starting to feel that. And I think a lot of business leaders are voting with their feet. I had a fascinating conversation again in the Carolinas um, with an industrial sector CEO that said, you know, sometimes we vote Republican, sometimes we vote Democrat, but we always vote on trade because that's where our bread is buttered. And that kind of speaks to these larger policy issues of, you know, are, is the global economy serving our national interests and our local interests? We have to make sure that those two things are connected. That presumes that voting on trade means that you might support some constraints on total free trade. <laughs> well, that's 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 also a good point. And I guess it depends on the kind of CEO you're talking about and where they sit. I'll, I'll end with uh, uh, one of the questions here, which is just what, what are the stakes if we don't respond as a country to some of these uh, changes in both economics and, and the political sphere? You know, I think the stakes right now are, do we as Americans, do we want to be um, a little more like Germany or do we want to be a little more like Brazil? <laughs> you know, I mean, I have a, a strange bifurcated reporting life where I spend about half my life talking to some of the world's wealthiest people and about half my life talking to the opposite, you know, going out and meeting workers and, you know, all over the country. And I do see us moving into this world where there are havens of wealth, there are hubs of wealth that seem almost to be taking refuge from the national conversation. And that worries me. That worries me a lot um, because that doesn't end well for anyone. Let me um, thank you for a very stimulating conversation and also thank you for uh, a very stimulating book and the thesis of which we're going to be grappling with uh, for years to come. So um, our thanks to Rana Faruhar, author of Homecoming, The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Global World. Uh, thank you for joining us today. We encourage everyone to pick up a copy of Rana's book at your local bookstore. Uh, if you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash events. I'm Kirk Hansen, and I thank Rana Faruhar and you members for joining us today. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.